Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 684 with my guest Kendra Petty. Uh, This is the mental illness. (laughs) We're off to a good start. This is the mental illness happy hour, and this is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Just keep in mind, I'm not a therapist, and this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Um, The website for this show and the social media handles you can follow us at is MentalPod. I was played cards with a comedian group of friends uh, last night. And first of all, so much fun, so much laughter. Um, and one of the things we started reminiscing about was there was this very nice woman that used to book comedy clubs back in the back in the day. We're talking decades ago. And she was very well-meaning. But, oh, my God, you would be on the phone with her just trying to book a single date, not a date with her, a comedy club date, and you could not get off the phone with her. She would over-explain things a thousand times, hardly ever took a breath, just talking a mile in a minute, saying nothing. And it got me thinking about how so many of us can be so blind to what our coping mechanism is. Because as I look back now, I used to think of her as just annoying and clueless and very kind of judgmental. But I look back now and I'm like, that was her coping mechanism. She was dealing with something, whether it's she was afraid of silence, you know, that her history of silence was uncomfortable or led to something or afraid that She's not enough, but I think each of us, or at least many of us, have some kind of glaring coping mechanism that people who are kind of attuned to um, the, the psychology of emotion and trauma and coping mechanisms can, can see in 30 seconds from a complete stranger, and so many of us can live our entire lives not even being aware that we've got this glaring, blunt, primitive tool to cope. And I don't know, that's one of the things that I like about being in recovery and going to support groups is we get introduced to the tools that aren't working for us anymore and we get to upgrade them. And I don't know, that's, that's one of the parts that's really kind of inspiring to me. And, and the other thing 
is as we kind of upgrade our, our coping mechanisms and get healthier and <laughs> less kind of annoying to other people, is people in our support groups can kind of reflect back to us our growth because, yeah, our, our bad coping mechanisms are often hard for us to spot, but also our growth can be hard for us to spot. And it's really nice to have a group of people that can remind us how far that we've come. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself kind of emo, but definitely depressed. And she writes about her anxiety. Tiny papers like the ones in fortune cookies flying around in my head like money in a cash grab tube thing. About her hair and skin picking like a baby sucking its thumb. Snapshot from her life. Skin and hair picking. Spending an hour on the toilet just from peeing because I got distracted by hand plucking my pubes even though I shaved them to stay short so I don't do this or hyperfixating on a single hair in my brows that isn't quite long enough to be plucked, but spending too long trying to get it. And now I have a scab on my eyebrow, and I feel like everyone's staring at it. Speaking of coping mechanisms that other people can see, although I suppose the person with the scab is definitely aware of that. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by... A woman who calls herself Vaggie Burger. Actually, uh, the gender uh, that they identify is half woman, half amazing. I'm not sure what that would be called. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I tell myself I'm a pervert or that I need to be more careful. I watched a porn video after three years of not watching porn. I pride myself in having friendships, but I'm also afraid of potentially being ridiculed. I don't like vulnerability. It's pathetic, but I do think about my friends occasionally, but I date outside of my friend circle. I watched cartoon slash 3D lesbian porn because I worry about people being exploited. That doesn't make it better. I started flirting and going back out to bars to be seen, social, sane, and find a partner. Sometimes I tell myself my past is holding me back. No one will date me even though I haven't ever become abusive. I tell myself if my future partner finds out my childhood, they will leave or not take the relationship seriously. Am I a good person? Question mark. I work, but I don't make 170k and I'm not earning enough to be middle class. I've never done anything to be on Chris Hansen's show. I'm going to stop there because I'm rambling. Thank you for that. That's a lot. And uh, yeah, the voice in your head's pretty mean and pretty pretty judgmental. And uh, yeah, man, when that when that voice is running the show, vulnerability is terrifying. But I hope you keep trying to uh, to pursue it and lowering the volume of that mean voice in your head. This is from the love survey filled out by Earl Gray Slumped. And they write, I love to curl up on my couch by the window on a cold morning with my hot tea and having found just the right fan fiction to capture my mood. I love a really good pen. I love when my husband peels my sweaty socks off for me. I love a candle lit shower 
with a good audiobook. I don't do not understand that one. I can understand you're probably playing your audiobook on a speaker. But how does the candlelit shower work? Cannot cannot wrap my head around that. And so I cast you to hell for confusing me. Right to hell on a bullet train. And not first class. Steerage. Are there steer is there steerage on bullet trains? I think not. I think that would probably be a bad term for it. This is from the Workplace Bullying Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Scattered. And uh, she writes, My manager badgers me and gives unconstructive criticism at work. If I start a project early, he complains. If I take initiative, he says that I should act like my work is easy. If I send an email, he finds fault with even. If the email is a gratitude email, he reminds me I'm a woman, as if I don't know that. He constantly tells me I don't know anything. When he makes a mistake, I help fix the issue, but he doesn't seem to get that we work for the same company. I even help him with his presentations. Okay, dot, dot, dot. Why am I even helping? How does it make you feel? Sigh. I hate the way he treats me. I want to quit, but I make less than middle class in my area. I had a talk with him about how I felt, and he became passive-aggressive. If I report him to the supervisors, it may also become a problem. I want to swear at him. I work too hard to be spoken down to. Have you tried to change the situation? Yes, I did. Um, Everyone likes him. Two people acknowledge he was being a dick. I still have to keep up with my workload and be accurate. That is my main focus. If I am not accurate, I lose my case against him. Any advice for someone in a similar experience? I can't advise other people on this because I haven't solved it. That sounds stressful as fuck. Wow. Wow. My um, my girlfriend is... Uh, the boss at the shipping warehouse that she works at. And so she has, I don't know, maybe 30 people working underneath her. And some of the stories that she tells me that she has to take to HR, um, I do not envy either the people that have to get involved in that um, or HR or it just... Oh my God, it sounds so draining. So draining. This is an email that I got from... Um, I'm, I'm going to withhold the email address, but the the name of the person is Cheap Cialis. And uh, they write, Good way of describing and fastidious article to take facts on the topic of my presentation subject, which I'm going to present in college. Well, first off, I want to congratulate you on making sure that your articles are fastidious. Um, I've been offered before to post articles by people who describe them as unfastidious, and I've always shied away from that. Um, And I don't know why, because I don't even know what fastidious means. But 
I very much relate to your college presentation being around Cheap Cialis because I I was a double major in theater in St. John's Wart. And I got to say, I was about three years into it when I realized Wart was spelled W-O-R-T and not W-A-R-T. And that was, that was, I got a low grade in that class. But to anybody out there who thinks that they need to get expensive Cialis, yes, it's more effective. But the thing about cheap Cialis is you're saving money. Sure, you don't get completely hard. But what I do when I'm using cheap Cialis is while I'm struggling to penetrate, I keep a jar of pennies on my headboard. And so I look at them and it makes me feel better. I remind myself that sure, things aren't working out, but I'm saving money. And I look forward to attending your graduation because I think those of us who major in over-the-counter or prescribed items. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. We need to support each other. And so I will be there. And I will also be wearing a cap and gown with a half boner. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And finally, this is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a trans woman who calls herself No Lemons. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? The things are going to get bad again, and at some point you're going to trip and fall back into depression and suicidal ideation. 
Uh, some of these are kind of dark. Next time you attempt, it needs to be real. It needs to kill you. You can't throw out the razor blades. You'll need them someday. You really should take your meds. You're doing better. You just need to keep it up. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I submitted a different uh, different info on this same survey a couple of weeks back. And when I heard it on the podcast, I remembered you telling another survey taker that they might benefit from playing the survey for their therapist. I did that and it really helped. Just encouraging listeners to do that might be nice. Well, let me encourage you guys, if you hear your survey read and you're having trouble expressing those sentiments or that information to your therapist, yeah, you might try you might try doing that. And then uh, continuing with some of the things you tell yourself about yourself about her trans identity, your identity is valid. You don't need to have things figured out right now. You're only 18, and I love you for trying to be yourself. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my altars have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder. And run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Kendra Petty. Uh, Thank you for making the slog uh, to come in. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. What an honor. Uh, Kendra's friend Paula is uh, is sitting in. Uh, are you going to take notes and critique us uh, at the end? Absolutely. <laughs> Let me know where I failed. <laughs> uh, Kendra has a book out called I uh, Can't Believe I'm Not Dead, uh, Escaping Abuse, a Cult, um, what, what, what is the other? Attempted Murder and Other Insanities, a story that cannot be true but is. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack. First of all, thank congratulations on still standing. Thank you, thank you. I'm very lucky to be alive. Well, let's go chronologically. Uh, you were raised in uh, a cult, and your parents were the kind of the leaders. Is that correct? My mom and my stepfather. Okay. Uh, the 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 church uh, started in our home and grew uh, exponentially to where we ended up needing to rent a retail space, and then we outgrew that, and we rented a church, and then we were able to hire a pastor uh, because my stepfather was the pastor until we got big enough to be able to pay a full-time pastor. So it, And I, I believe it still exists today. And are you comfortable sharing the the name of it, or would you rather not? I, I don't know the name of the church, uh, but it, you know, if you, if you had to compare it to a religion, I would say uh, non-denominational, charismatic, mm-hmm. uh, with a some very bizarre twists and focus on the Old Testament. Oh, Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so give me some snapshots from uh, from childhood. Gosh. Uh, well, I, I grew up with a, um, a very mentally, mentally ill mother. Uh, she was 
uh, not diagnosed for a very, very long time uh, because of her religion. You know, we weren't allowed to go to the doctor um, or take medicine, uh, lots of other bizarreness in that religion. But uh, so my mother was mentally ill. Uh, my parents, uh, the, my nuclear family, there were three kids, an older brother, myself, and my younger brother. When I was eight and my older brother, who was my best friend, was 10, he was killed in a horrific uh, accident that I, I was with him when it happened. And that really just broke my family apart. We were already unraveling and struggling with my mother's mental illness, but my brother's death caused my mother to go even madder. Uh, it, I, it created for me an environment of blame. I blamed myself. I had survivor's guilt. I developed horrible night terrors. My father left us uh, after about a year and a half, two years after my brother's death. We just couldn't couldn't sustain the family. Then my mother married the next-door neighbor, basically, uh, her best friend's husband. Her best friend died of cancer about a year after my brother died, and they got together and got married. And I inherited two stepsisters who used to be my neighbors, and we... Uh, we lived together, moved into a house. My father built homes, and so my father was building him a home uh, at the time that my mother got together with him. His name was Don, great man. And I think out of their grief, my mother losing her son and her best friend and he losing his wife and the mother to his two daughters, I really think that's where this... this um religion, this church that they founded, came into being. It was really, I think, out of grief and searching for answers and f searching for comfort. Were they practicing Christians at that point, and what denomination? Uh, we were. We were. I was sprinkled Methodist. Uh, my father was Methodist, raised Methodist. Uh, but when we left the family farm that he grew up on and uh, started moving around Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, we became Baptist. We started practicing in the Baptist church. My mother's father was a Baptist preacher. So um, so we followed her religion. And so we were, you know, Sunday Sunday mornings, occasional Wednesday evenings, just sort of a So you typical. started going backwards through the Bible. Yeah. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so when, when we transitioned to this sort of charismatic, really just, a, a, you know, a bizarre following. Was was there a name to it? What what? Uh, I mean, they called themselves Christians, right. but you know, it was it was the type of church you've seen on TV, or maybe maybe you've been to some. It was you know, you'd speak in tongues, you'd sing in tongues, you'd scream in tongues. So a little lay, Pentecostal. Lay, lay lay your hands on people right. to heal them. They'd fall out and convulse on the ground and. Um, you know, cast the devil out of people, that that sort of religion. But it, it 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 went so much further because they really cut us off from the real world. We we were raised in a bubble. So we weren't allowed to socialize with anybody outside the church. Uh, we weren't allowed to read magazines and, and watch TV or read newspapers. We weren't allowed to listen to the radio unless it was Christian music. Um, again, no, no friendships. We went to a Christian school, but no friendships – uh, outside of the church or school, but we weren't even allowed to go to friends' houses that went to the Christian school, not until I was really kind of a senior in high school. But So we're really just cut off from reality and, and the the real world, if you will. And did you talk about this with your new step-siblings? 
Uh, not really. We all just kind of fell in line. My mother was very domineering, very, very domineering. How how would her uh, mental illness express itself? Uh, out of tremendous anger, tremendous anger. She was very physically abusive, extremely physically abusive. Um, she would choke me until I black out. Uh, just cruel, brutal beat- beatings. My stepfather made paddles. For us, he met, ran uh, a chain of grocery stores, and so he'd break apart the paddles, uh, the the pallets, and saw them and cut cut holes through them so that you know the the wind went through it more aerodynamic. Right, I mean, right. you got to give him credit <laughs> yeah. for that. That's just uh, that's just efficient. It is, and and they they would stack them up on the fireplace, and one for each child, and they got big, you know, bigger. The bigger they were for the older child, and then it kind of went down in size, and. My mother really focused her abuse on me for the most part, and I always thought it was because she blamed me for my brother's death because I was with him, and um, you know I kind of looked at it. I was I was a little rowdy as a child. I wasn't a bad child. I was just very active and very rowdy. And and my brother was really the good child. He wanted to be a preacher. He was very loving. He was How much very older calm. did you say he was? Not you? quite two years. Okay. Not quite two years. Are you comfortable talking about the circumstances of his death, or would you rather uh, not go there? No, we can we we can we could try. Okay, we can definitely try. Yeah, do, I do not want to push you. Sure, sure. Um, so when I was eight, it was June, Friday the thirteenth, and I was in a group called the Bluebirds, which is the organization before you go to Girl Scouts, and I had been at Bluebirds camp all week. And on, you know, it was just a day camp. And on Friday was awards day. And so we were supposed to, I was supposed to go to Bluebirds camp to get, um, to get awards. But I heard that my brother, and I loved my brother. I followed him everywhere and, and he didn't mind. He, I mean, we were just, you know, thick as thieves. I heard that he was going to go fishing and I wanted to go fishing. I, they were going fishing at a place called Craig's Pond and it was across a highway. But our babysitter, who was a teenager, was going to go with him. And so I begged my mom to let me go. And uh, she she was not going to go to the awards ceremony, and, and my father was working, so, you know, it wasn't really that important to me. So she said, okay, I skipped the, the, the little Bluebirds awards ceremony. We went fishing. And, you know, in hindsight, thinking back, uh, you know, what to let two children cross a highway is, is crazy. But, you know, I think, Probably my mom's thinking is that we were with our babysitter who was a teenager. So we crossed the highway. We fished all afternoon. And my mother told my brother, make sure you bring her back at such and such time. Bring me back for a birthday party that I had to go to. So it was um, time to leave and go back across the highway to the birthday party. And I, I asked our babysitter to go with us. And she said, no, no, you all go on. You'll be fine. And I started begging her, please go with us because we had we had never crossed that highway um, and I was scared. And she said, no, no, go ahead. You'll be fine. And Kent Jr., just come on back when you're done. So we start, we get to the highway. We're holding hands. He starts to run and I start to run with him hand in hand. And I get scared and I stop in the middle of the highway and I turn around and I go back and he keeps going and I'm on one side of the highway now, and he's on the other, and he's waving at me to come on. And I see a, a very big black car barreling down the highway, and I'm telling him it's not okay, and I'm screaming, pointing to the car, and he never saw the car. 
Uh, he was looking at me the whole time, telling me that it was okay. And it was a very gruesome, grotesque um, death for him. I mean, it was really br brutal. There's a lot more description in the book, but um, it was very tragic. And I, I, I immediately developed night terrors that I have to this day. I've worked a lot to, to heal from that, so they're not as bad, but they, they have been horrible night terrors for I can't imagine. decades. I can't imagine. Decades. And I'm so sorry for your, not only for your loss, but to uh, have it happened in such a way and at such a, a, a an impressionable uh, age. That, that Thank you. Um, just awful. Thank just you. awful. Yeah. It was, it, it, it was horrible. It was horrible for my brother, honestly. Horrible for my brother. So, you know, Friday the 13th always has a pretty big impact for me, for sure. What are some uh, things that uh, kind of, I guess, trigger you? Things that, for the person who've, who has never experienced something like that, or anybody who's never experienced trauma, one of the things that they always think, that they think is the totality of it is the event itself and just the memory of it, but they don't realize it could be the smell of someone's cologne, sure. a certain noise. What are what are some of the things that uh, kind of send you spiraling or activate yeah. your body uh, or feelings? My brother was born on Christmas Day, so Christmas Day is not. Uh, I, I never go back to Oklahoma on Christmas. Um, just it's just too hard to hear my family talk about my brother, and you know I don't I don't think any of them really realize, or maybe they do now that they've read the book, but I don't think before any of them really realized the impact. That is the one event of my life that if I could change it, I absolutely would. Um, and it is the biggest regret of my life. It, it really is. Uh, so Christmas Day is hard. Friday the 13th is hard. Um, anytime I see kids crossing a street or you know, not really thinking about being safe, that definitely triggers me. I can't. I can't imagine um, with your mom heaping the guilt on you, as if the the voice in your head, you know, the survivor's guilt that people already have, mm -hmm. but to have a mom blaming you. Um, she and she never said it is your fault, but her focus on physical abuse was always on me. Um, the other kids did not get near, and I, and I was afraid of my mom. So it wasn't like I was a child who talked back to my mom. I never skipped school. I never, I never intentionally did anything to upset my mom. But you would never, you never knew what triggers my mom had, and it, it could come out of nowhere. But every day was like nine one one, hair on fire with my mother, and it. You know, she tried to jump. She would try to jump out of moving cars if somebody said something just wrong, and we're driving down the highway. She'd try to jump out of a moving car. She would beat me with anything, anything she could get her hands on, uh, and it was always directed to me. And the, uh, the kids, uh, my two stepsisters have said that they remember, and I don't remember this, but as, as kids, when they would start to get in trouble, that I would in intervene and interrupt so that they wouldn't get hit. Instead, I would. Now, I don't – that's a possibility. I don't really recall it. I just remember I got – I got beat a lot, a lot, very, very physical. And so the only way I could rectify and justify that was that 
my mother blamed me for living. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, how do you think the abuse that you experience has informed how you view yourself and how you interact with the world? Mm. That's a that's a very good question. I, for many years, I was angry. In my twenties, I was very angry. I moved to New York City right after high school. Spent eight years there. Uh, I was very, very angry. Well, you blend in in yeah, New York. That's right. And people that's are like, right. what's she so happy yeah, about? That's right. I got into my mid-late 20s, and I knew I needed to leave New York because I was like, oh, my God, I'm becoming just like these people. I'm going to die of a heart attack soon. And I moved to L.A. for the first time. But um, so after, I think, after New York? Yeah. Well, yeah. after New York, yes. Yeah. But I, I, it took me a long time to really work through that anger. And I was a fighter. Like I wouldn't, I would not let people bully me. And, and to this day, I I really have a hard time standing standing down when someone bully, bullies me or someone I know. So I was a fighter. What what hold that thought? So you were a fighter. How would you describe if there's a switch that flips? Is it a slow burn? Is it a, a kind of a, a a switch flipping? Take take us kind of inside your thought process and what's going on in your body when you feel like somebody is disrespecting or crossing your boundaries or bullying. Yeah. Well, it, so it's different now than it was when I was in my 20s and early 30s. When I let's, was in my, let's talk about then. When I was in my 20s and early 30s, I mean, it was it was immediate. It was immediate that I would lash back and push back and fight back if physically, verbally, depended on the situation. Gotcha. Depended on the situation. Multi talented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm small but mighty, um, and I that that definitely was born out of being bullied by my mother, verbally, mentally, emotionally abused, physically abused on a daily basis. It was. It was just rage all the time. I mean, we—you never could relax at, in my household because you—you were the, always on pins and needles. The amount of uh, negative energy that mm-hmm. you absorbed yeah. is how—how uh, how did you let it out as a kid? Was it all internalized? I played a lot of sports. I played every sport, uh, and I loved being very physical, very active. Uh, so I played every sport that that was offered uh, at my Christian school. And there were a lot of sports. There was every season. There was a sport, and sometimes two. So I I played a lot of sports, and that was really my only outlet. Um, and then as I got older, really my career and my focus on my career became an outlet for me. And still continuing to be physical and you know working out or rock climbing and a little bit of hiking, but m- mostly rock climbing and such. Water. I love the water. So. So uh, let's let's fast forward then. What did you go to New York to pursue? Uh, I went to. Uh, I wanted to go to college. You know, growing up, I I knew I I was not going to get married and have babies and stay in Oklahoma. That was not. That's what everybody else did, but that's not what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted a career. I didn't know what kind of career, but I knew I wanted a career. And I also always wanted to live in New York and L.A. So I chose New York first and ended up. You know, I established, established my residency and went to school in Manhattan at a SUNY school, State University of New York school. Uh, I worked three jobs to pay my way through school and, you know, survive in New York wow. City. And then I started focusing on building my career. And after eight years in New York, I just got tired of the cold weather 
and the cold people. <laughs> and, and the dirt and the noise. Yeah. And, you know, that was a big shift coming from Oklahoma. Uh, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it until I didn't. And, and then I knew it was time to go. So then I packed up my bags and moved to L.A. for the first time. I've lived in L.A. a couple times, and I love L.A. Um, and I just love when – I, when I got here to L.A., I, I fell in love with it and didn't look back. So let's go back to your your 20s when you would uh, have a confrontation with somebody that switch would flip. Um would you come down after it? Would would you, you know, quote unquote come to your senses? Did you did clarity return? Uh Yeah, and I don't think I was ever like I wasn't like my mother, right? Uh, I just felt if the, if something was done to me that or or someone I was around or a friend that was not just, I felt like I needed to tell that person. One of those friends. Yeah, I love having friends. I, like I needed that. to tell that person yeah. what what they're doing and what was wrong, and it, and I wasn't afraid if it needed to get physical, and I think that w- came from you know growing up in such a manic, crazy state for eighteen years, and we children were not allowed to show emotion. At all. We weren't allowed. We never talked back. We never raised our voices. We weren't even allowed to give each other dirty looks across the dinner table, you know, the kids. We we had to behave perfectly with no emotion. And we, and we couldn't even get too excited either, like just really level-headed. So I think at, when I left and I had the ability to speak my mind and not be pushed around, I did so. You know, today I'm, I bite my tongue a lot more, but I, you know, I'm, I'm also not afraid of a of a fight if it, if it if it needs to come to that i'll protect myself for my friends do you ever kind of uh look back and wonder what were my parents thinking my mom and my stepdad what were what were they what were their intentions what were they hoping to get how could they not see the hypocrisy and the the abuse do you do you ever find yourself just wondering? I do. I do. Why? What was? You know, I confronted my mom after. So I I moved in with my father in the middle of my senior year. After, I mean, my mom just was brutally beating me, and I ran out of the house and I ran a couple of miles to a convenience store and called my father. And, and uh, when my father saw my body and he had my stepmother take pictures, like the bruises, the cuts, the welts, he pulled out parts of my hair. I had long hair. He had her take pictures and he was infuriated and he wanted to call the police and have her arrested. And <clears throat> I thought about it and I, I just couldn't see myself going to court and having to talk to police and having to face her and deal with her anymore. And I said, no, I, I really just – I want <clears throat> I want to be done with it. I want to be done with her. I'm never going back. I'm going to graduate soon and I'm leaving. So we did not. But I, before I left for New York, I went over to her house and I – confronted her and I said, you know, mom, we were sitting in the backyard and I said, I don't, I don't understand like why my whole life you, you brutally beat me and mostly just me. Uh, why was that? And she looked at me dead in the eye and said with her Oklahoma accent, like I can't even emulate it anymore, but said, I don't remember any of that. (laughs) I thought, wow, you are nuts. You are, you are insane and that's the last i ever spoke about it with her um and i just i moved on i just moved on you know i hear that quite a bit and it makes me wonder 
um, if, if the person that is, is my mom was not physically abusive, but she could be verbally abusive and also sweet. And you never knew kind of what, what mm-hmm. you were going to get. Nothing as intense as, as your mom, but she would say things sometimes that were so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And if I ever addressed it later, she had no recollection of it. And I've wow. heard many, many instances of people with a parent like that. And I wonder what is it dissociating? Is it a, a multiple personalities? Right. Is it just going into a fugue state where the rage kind of takes over? I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. by that. I, uh, with my mom's response, I, t- I just took it as denial. I didn't believe that she could not remember her rage every single day. I just felt like she was flat out lying. But it it could be for some people, you know, disassociation and or multiple personalities. I I unfortunately have a lot of mental illness in my family, so mm-hmm. my mother is not the only one. And so we've seen varying levels from different family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is it's something that kind of fascinates me yeah. and and it makes me very sad for the people that I call it that were touched in my family, yeah. multiple uncles and my grandmother and a stepsister and my mother. So, and and uh, just want to emphasize too, this is my curiosity, me wondering about it. This is not me saying, "Oh, well, they were abusive. They had dissociative identity disorder." I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. This sure. is I'm somebody who is curious about what makes people. Tick. As am I. As am I. Yeah. Because when I look at my mother, so I had. On both my mother and father's side, they both had brothers that were committed at a very young age. One was a late teen, one was in his mid-20s, and they lived their entire life committed to an insane asylum or – Whatever you want to call yeah. it. Uh, and they both died there in their 70s. So they were there wow. over 50 years. My grandmother was supposedly – my mother's mother was supposedly mentally ill. I don't know what it was. And I never really saw that behavior from her, but she was on lithium my whole life, the whole time I knew her. So she was always very calm. I wish my mother had been on lithium. Uh, I had a stepsister who was brain damaged at birth. Uh, the umbilical cord got wrapped mm-hmm. around her neck. And so the part of her brain that was damaged was her ability to control her temper and socialize. And so she was also abusive um, a number of times. And she later apologized, I think. You know, she, she got therapy and she medication, and she worked through a lot of that. And she's now married and has children. Um, but she, I remember at her father's funeral, my stepfather, she started crying and and apologized. And I thought that was very sweet for her to acknowledge that, considering my mother could never yeah. acknowledge it. But was your mother ever given a diagnosis? Had did she ever seek help? N- no, she yes, she was given a diagnosis late in life, but she never sought help because we weren't allowed to go to the doctor, no medical care. I mean, unless it was absolute Bone emergency. hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I split my leg wide open one time, wide open on a barbed wire fence. Um, and you, you could see things deep into my leg and they prayed over me and didn't take me to the hospital. And <laughs> I'm I, sorry. To, it was to lie. That's so horrible. That's so. I, I describe it in detail in the book, but by the time they finally did take me to the hospital, because I was in excruciating pain, it was you know twenty four, thirty hours later, and the doctor came in and looked at it and said, oh "My God, we we can't sew that up. All that skin is dead around it." So we just had to, you know. Nowadays, there's a lot better 
care for something like that. But back then it just took months and months and months to heal and it was really horrible. But so she, she, you know, back to my mother and her diagnoses, she would not go to the doctor. She would not take medicine. Honestly, I don't think she thought there was a problem. But late in life, after her husband died, um, we had to put her in an assisted living home because she really just shut down. She wouldn't take care of herself. She wouldn't go outside. She wouldn't drive. She wouldn't feed herself. Uh, there's a whole lot around that. And my stepfather's death, uh, that's like a whole book in and of itself. But, um, you know, my stepfather was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia and she was not feeding him. And he was over six foot tall, like six one. And he went down to, I mean, he was under a hundred pounds when he died. She was not feeding him. She was abusing him because abusers prey on the weak. And so my mother was physical with him. There are a number of times she called my brother and said, can you come pick your stepfather up from the ground? He can't get up. He fell. He fell. That's air yeah. quotes. But, you know, it was obvious from the bruises and cuts on him that she was abusing him. So I think that facilitated a quicker death for him, and it, it broke my heart. Um, but after that, after he died, um, she, again, shut down, wouldn't take care of herself. So we put her in assisted living, and she was only mid-60s. She was young. And they, she kept getting passed around from facility to facility because they would say, "This is we don't deal with this with her mental illness. I mean, we don't deal with this. This is not what we do." And now she's she's been in hospice for two years, um, but she's been in these homes for sixteen years. <clears throat> and so she did get a diagnosis when she was put into one of these homes, and it was uh, manic bipolar, but. That's really just the tip of the iceberg for my mother. You know, she she lives in Lawton, Oklahoma, so I'm, no no disrespect to the doctors in Lawton, Oklahoma, but you know they're not. There's probably not the best psychologists, and there's so much more and so much deeper to my mother's mental illness than just not not making light of manic bipolar. But there's so right. much more to my mother. Yeah. So how do you think your upbringing affected your romantic picker? <laughs> um, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I, hmm, gosh, that's a good question. I don't think it, I don't think, when I look at the women, because I'm gay, the women that I've dated, like I'm definitely not trying to find a mother figure by any means because of the type of girls that I prefer mm -hmm. are not your mother figure kind of kind of girl so i don't i don't really know you know and i was also sexually abused by a female babysitter as a child and so people that know that will ask me oh is that why you're gay or is what does that feel like when they ask that kind of offensive kind of yeah. offensive um because you know this is just who i was i was born this way i remember being very small much many years before the babysitter or not many several years before the babysitter and and liking you know having little crushes on girls so I don't think my mother's behavior or the babysitter situation necessarily influenced me being gay or not. And I don't think my mother – I don't think it influences my choice of women. Maybe my father and you know his view of women, maybe that has influenced – And what was his view of women? Um, you know, he loves beautiful women. 
I mean, he's been married three times. He's married to a, a wonderful, amazing woman, beautiful woman now. But you know, I'm, I'm my father's daughter for sure. We like beautiful women, and you know, aesthetically, a beautiful heart as well. But aesthetically, will beautiful you? Women. Do you have a track record of sacrificing the internal for the external? Uh, absolutely. Talk about that, oh, man. Oh, I did not know we were going to go there. <laughs> I do, and it's terrible. Um, gosh, you know, I, I I was married once and engaged once, and I really never wanted to get married. Um, I did it because I really loved my wife. She was stunningly beautiful, but she also had a beautiful heart. Um, but as I after after my divorce, I really did start just focusing on. I just want to date a hot girl, and I don't really care what's in her brain. Or her heart. I just want to date a hot girl. I appreciate you sharing that. A lot of people, um, that is their story. And they judge themselves for it. Um, or other people judge them for it. And a lot of people are afraid to to say that. Yeah. Um, and so I, pr- I appreciate you being uh, honest about that. I mean, it's not... Not something I'm proud of, but I'm. But also on the flip side of that, I'm not the person looking to find a wife and settle down and get married. Now I would love a you know a longish term relationship. I don't know that I ever want to. I haven't lived with anybody since my ex-wife, and that's 15 years ago. So you know that would be very difficult for me to end up living with somebody. But you know now I'm I'm a little different. I I definitely look for quality uh, in the in the mind and soul. People um, will often share about the three-month mark in a relationship when the – I wouldn't say the, the – the, yeah, maybe the excitement of the newness of it begins to wear off or maybe it's six months or a year. Um, have you – do you have a pattern of – kind of going, why am I not falling more deeply in love with this person? Why do I want to now just kind of get out of this? There's nothing abusive. I feel like I should be feeling more love towards this person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. And I, I've i ended a lot of relationships, a lot of relationships. And you know that could come from watching my parents get divorced and then uh, my father divorced Again, and you know, both of them remarried multiple times, or my father multiple times, and my mother remarried. But it it's true for me. You know, I'll I'll hit a mark and say, okay, this is not who I see myself being with forever. And when I say forever, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to walk down the aisle. And, mm-hmm. But you know, it it would be great to have a life partner. <clears throat> and so I will end the relationship because I don't want to. Or if if she. She starts talking about what are the next steps, and I know for me there are no next steps, then I have to end it. Does somebody seeing you and loving you and being affectionate towards you, are there ever any moments that it just kind of makes your skin crawl or you you're just want to push them away? Uh, only if I'm just not into them, but I, my love language is touch. I'm yeah. a very affectionate, very touchy-feely person, I, you know, affectionate to my family, to my friends, definitely love to be affectionate to the person I'm in a relationship with. So no, uh, no, not unless I've just decided I, I don't want to be with them anymore. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, I, I relate a lot to some of the stuff that, that, 
that you've shared, and I'm a, a childhood sexual abuser survivor, and I never realized in this, please don't take my line of questioning as me trying to diagnose you. It just as the questions pop into my head, sure. you know, I, I asked them. But one of the things that I have struggled with in my life um, is being comfortable having somebody see me and and love me and not wanting to run, being attracted to emotionally or physically unavailable people the you know the more indifferent somebody is to me the more like catnip it it was and that's no longer the case anymore and and i believe and my therapist have told me it's because of the processing of of the sexual trauma and learning to set boundaries and trust again and i'm in a wonderful monogamous uh relationship have been for for five years and i love feeling scene and i don't get that feeling anymore of of like my, my skin crawling um so th- that was the reason why i was asking you sure. those those questions because kendra i wanted to make it all about me how are you <laughs> i love that i love that <laughs> uh let's talk about what the coping and the developing coping mechanisms and healing and all that stuff looks like there there's a story in here about the attempted murder and you working for um a company that you began to slowly realize was probably mob or mob affiliated um and i'll leave that one for the for the book for the for the readers i'm kind of more interested in uh your development and what healing looks like, what uh, all that kind of stuff. Let me know if I'm leaving a horror out other than that. <laughs> well, you know, I'll just touch on that story briefly because uh, it's important to kind of where I got to a point to say, okay, I really need to figure this out. My marriage, uh, I, I married a woman who unbeknownst to me was an addict and an alcoholic, and I was madly in love with her. And she had a ste- uh, she had a daughter, so I had I had a stepdaughter who I loved very much. But she started to exhibit very strange behaviors. Um, and I, because I was raised in a bubble, I did not know what someone you know drinking and drugs. I didn't know what that looked like. So I thought that this woman just had mental illness, like my mother, and I would tell her. You know, either you're doing drugs or you've got some mental issues. Either way, we've got to get you some help, and that would just infuriate her. But she was very physically abusive, very, very physically abusive when she was high. She broke my bones on multiple occasions. I've got scars all over my body from her abuse. And, you know, when you grow up in an abusive situation, your level uh, and your bar for accepting and dealing (laughs) with, you know, shit is much higher than a regular person. And, I, you know, also, to your point, inability to set boundaries and acknowledge red flags and, and do something and, about it. And truly believing I deserve better. Right, right. And I really loved her. I, honestly, if she had not been doing drugs, had not been an addict, we'd, we'd still be together today. And what was her sure. drug of choice? Uh, when I was with her, I think she probably did. And, and unfortunately, she went through so much as a child. Her mom was a heroin addict. She was in 26 different foster homes, every oh kind of abuse you could imagine. Her mother would take her to truck stops to hook for drugs. I mean, it was a, she had a horrible childhood. And so I think that also I 
gave her more chances than I should have. And I really just thought I could fix her and help her. Uh, but when we moved to, to San Francisco, she got addicted to crystal meth. And that is a mean, mean, bad it drug. It is awful. And uh, so, so I ended up finally divorcing her. It took six years to unwind from that. And I was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. And I moved them back to Texas. And I didn't date for two years. But I took a position with a company at the tail end of that relationship and moved to another city. And I, I've, you know, in the book, I've changed all the names. I've changed company names. I've changed cities. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to track this down. But I, I did. I worked for a really bad firm. And they tried to kill me. They killed a CEO. Uh, they tried to kill me. And they did it by poisoning me. I found poisons in my home, in my car, in my office. I was unknowingly inhaling the poisons, wearing them on my clothes, ingesting them. Uh, and it made me very, very sick. Very sick. I almost died. And being exposed to chemicals and being sick led to several of the diseases. So for over a decade, I developed Graves, Graves disease, um, which you know was very difficult for me to keep in remission, kept coming out of remission. And I always told my friends, I said, if I ever get cancer, because cancer doesn't run in my family, I said, if I, if I ever get cancer, it's because of those poisons, of those chemicals that they tried to kill me with. Sure enough, the gestation period for being exposed to chemicals is seven to eight years. I was diagnosed with breast cancer at seven and a half years. And the fallout from that, you know, what it did to my body, you know, double mastectomy, chemo, reconstruction, but chemo just wrecked my body. And so Graves disease was wrecking my body. Chemo was wrecking my body. Um, And so I I spent well over a decade just trying to stay healthy. I was in a lot of physical pain all the time, exhausted all the time, really fatigued. And so I, I call it chasing the pain. I spent way over a decade just trying to get better and spend a lot of time and money, with, my own money with doctors and homeopathic doctors and Eastern and Western medicine and not so much focused on my mind and my soul, focused on my physical body and trying to get better and focused on my career because that was always my mainstay and, and you know being successful and climbing the ladder. And so those are my two focuses. And, and what was the career? Uh, I'm an executive vice president for a parking and transportation company. Okay. We work together. She's indicating Paula. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I am now with a third company. I've been with three different companies, and this was the the company in the middle that that did this, not the company I'm with now. Gotcha. But after, you know, a dozen years of dealing with all that physical illness, uh, I really just hit a wall. And, and I was living in fear for well over a decade as well. I was scared to death because they weren't successful in ki- killing me. And so I was always afraid that they were going to come back and try mm. to finish the job. So I was always looking over my shoulder. I really shut down socially. I moved. Yeah, yeah, I moved a number of times. Um, but, uh, you know, always installing the best security system that I could. But, you know, always just being in fear. I shut down my social media. I didn't allow anybody in my home for years. I didn't make new friends. I only socialized with people that I knew from before uh, this happened. And so I just – I lived in fear. So I, I worked. I was sick and I lived in fear and that was kind of my life. And I dated. I did – I would date. Um, and so I really just hit a wall about five years ago. I hit a, a wall hard and I said, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick of being sick. I'm sick of being afraid. I'm I'm sick of being alone. Um 
I really have to get to the bottom of this. And that was really hitting that wall was the nemesis for me saying, okay, it's time to dig into this and figure out how I can heal my mind, my body, my heart, my soul, uh, so that hopefully I can move forward and change the trajectory of this crazy cycle of trauma and tragedy that had been my whole life, just again and again and again, my whole life, trauma, tragedy, PTSD. And so I really started reading and you know trying to learn and dig in, seeing energy healers, you know, focusing mm-hmm. on my well-being. I didn't, I didn't, I've never gone to therapy. <laughs> Um, or I've tried a few, I've tried a handful of therapists and those have all been just a mess. So I, I ended those, uh, those, uh, therapy sessions pretty quickly, but I really just started focusing on how, how can I heal myself? Mm -hmm. And I've come a long way. I mean, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of work. And one of the things I did was, was write the book and I had no idea how therapeutic it would be to write the book. And then, yeah. you know, even this, you know, us talking, all of that is, is part of the healing process. Yeah, that to me is uh, probably the biggest cornerstone in being able to function and, and, and thrive. Um, Gabor Mate uh, says that the opposite of, of addiction is connection. And I believe that that connection, you know, so there's, there's almost nothing that it's not a medicine. Yeah, absolutely. For. No, I well, agree. What were the problems with the therapy? Because, of course, you know, as a codependent control freak, I, you know, I want to go, well, we need to get you back into therapy, Kendra. Uh, I think you bailed because you're afraid at opening certain doors that you want to remain closed. So pardon me for being that dick. But I feel like some of the listeners listening to this are like, I hope Paul addresses the fact that she has never really delved into therapy or continued with it. So it, I hope that doesn't come across as a, a know-it-all or no, not offensive. At all. Not at all. Not at but all. But what the fuck, right. Kendra? Yep. I, listen, I've heard that before. Trust me. Uh, and I'm actually a really well-grounded, really level-headed person. And I'm very kind. I'm very empathetic. I, I, I'm very generous. I'm, um, you know, I'm just really kind of a normal person. But – I get the same response from a lot of people, and so, but for me, and I'm I'm a big supporter of therapy. I I encourage right. anyone uh, to at least try it. Anyone that's in a situation where they're, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not anti-therapy at all. But for me, to try to sit down and talk about all these horrible things that have happened to a stranger and think that that person's going to help me, uh, it, for me, it's just never. That's never. That's never worked. I'm, I've had friends my whole life who read the book and said, holy shit, how did I never know any of this about you? And I said, because I never talk about it. Um, and I don't. I, I didn't even talk about this. Honestly, this is the first time I've talked about the story with my brother in detail like this. I hired a ghostwriter to help me write the book, and I didn't even tell her the story. We kept We had a placeholder in the book for that and the babysitter situation, and I just could never talk about it. And so... I finally she she kept pushing me as we got towards the end and she was like, you know, we really got to get these stories down and in the book and I finally just sat down and took a month and just wrote them myself and and then gave them to her. Um but for me that talking to one singular person and thinking that they're going to give me some advice that's going to help me has just never never helped and I think that probably stems again from growing up in a 
home where we didn't talk. Mm -hmm. All we talked about was the Bible and God. That's it. We didn't talk about anything else. And so, you know, not being allowed to show emotion, not being allowed to speak and talk. It found, it took me years to find my voice, mm -hmm. years. Um, and I'm very happy that I finally did. But I, I have had some multiple situations with therapists. I was seeing a therapist here in LA <laughs> one time and he fell asleep during our session. And I thought, I am not a boring person. Like I was so offended. So I stopped seeing him. And I really I'd wasn't, say that was a good call. I, I really wasn't getting a lot out of it. Uh, another time I was seeing a therapist after my marriage. I was just distraught and uh, I, I just needed something to help me feel better. And so I went to a therapist and uh, th I write this in detail in the book. She was horrible. She um, she convinced me to join a group of former addicts and um, spouses of addicts. And so that's kind of how mm -hmm. a lot of therapists earn extra money is you go to these groups and or at least back then the insurance doesn't cover it. So it's out of pocket. I see. So it's a facilitated right. uh, by group, her, not by a her. free 12 step. Right. No, no, group. no. By facilitated by her. And so I remember one time I was, um, well, backing up, I will, I will get to that story with this therapist. But I, before I started that group, I was in singular therapy with her. And I was just, I was explaining how overwhelmed about life I was without them. I was overwhelmed in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, but I was explaining that I was now having to keep up with, you know, my, my ex-wife used to run, you know, we had a couple of homes, we had multiple cars, we had a boat. I mean, we had a wonderful life, but she kept up with all that. You know, she kept up with things that needed to be repaired in the homes. I had some rental properties. She handled all that. She handled the cars. She picked up the dry cleaning. You know, she made sure life functioned because I worked a lot and I traveled. And now I was alone and I was having to keep all that balanced. You know, I where do I go to the dry cleaner? How do I get groceries? Like, I was just really at a loss. And so I was telling her I was very overwhelmed. And I remember she looked at me and her head tilted and she said, and you only pay me $50 an hour or whatever the number was. What? And I thought, I thought you have to be kidding me. First of all, my insurance picked up the rest, right? But that, that was like my copay. I was so offended, but I continued to go see her. And then she convinced me to join this group. And we're, you know, I didn't talk the first few sessions, but I eventually, you know, start opening up. And I remember telling the group about my wife and some of the things she did. And I called her crazy. And I guess when you're with a therapist, you're not supposed to use that word. And uh, and for me, it was more descriptive, you know. Yeah. I, and I, I remember her head tilted. And I said, oh, great. Here, here goes the head tilt. Like now I've yeah. made her mad. Her head tilted. She didn't say anything. And I finished. And then before she let anybody else talk, she stopped the group. And she said, you know, I want to go back to something that Kendra said. And I thought, oh, great. And she said, uh, how does everybody feel about – Kendra using the word crazy to describe her wife, her her addict wife. And she let the former addicts tear me up in that meeting, tear me up. A couple of the spouses of addicts came to my you know, aid yeah. a little, but she just let them lay into me. And I was furious. And after they were done, I looked at her and I said, you know what? I said, I have spent years taking my wife's abuse. I said, she's broken my bones. I said, I have scars all over me from her. I would have to fly back in the middle of the night from business trips to find her because I couldn't find her or my stepdaughter and I was worried. 
I said, she beat me. I sp- I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on her and her daughter and trying to get her help. I said, if I want to call her crazy, <laughs> I will call her <laughs> crazy. You. And I wanted to get up and leave, but I try not to be dramatic or emotional or over the top. I, I try never to be that person. And so I waited till the end and I got up and I left and I never went back. Uh, I say good for you. Good for you because that is a fucked up situation. Very, and very. and I got to say, as somebody who is a recovering addict and has been for 20 years, yeah, we're fucking crazy. <laughs> we're, that's one of the reasons why we need support groups. Right, and right. It it. Uh, I mean, we're it, all a little crazy, right? Yes, and I'm I'm talking mostly about the person who is unrecovered, who doesn't have the tools. I'm talking about a a drug addict or alcoholic yeah. that is just relying on their own interpretation of reality. Yeah, like my ex wife. Yes. Um, well, that makes sense. That makes sense, and I'm sorry that that you. Uh, the slot machine gave you to uh, what it sounds like really objectively shitty uh, therapists. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of other therapists that I had not good experiences with. So, I, I, and, I, and for me, again, just sitting down and sharing all that was just it, – it was, it's too hard. It's, it, it's not functional for me. It's not the kind of therapy that I need, right? It's not the kind of healing yeah. I need. I think everybody has to find what works for them Agreed. to heal. Agreed. And I, but yes. I fully support therapy for many, yeah, many. I people. think you made that. I think you made yeah. that that clear. And uh, and I'm going to try to uh, resist my urge to want to try to convert you to support <laughs> groups in therapy. So uh-huh. this is an awesome challenge for me to <laughs> say great. yes, Kendra. Yeah, that's great. It's it, and I do believe what what find what works. For you, yeah. I'm just I'm can be such a know-it-all, and so want to fix people yeah. that sometimes I don't know when to just shut my mouth <laughs> no, and no. accept that I'll somebody. T- I'll take can all have the help I can get. Experience. I'll take all the help yeah. I can get. But yeah. honestly, with with this entire cycle of trauma and tragedy that I've been through, I really feel like I'm a very well balanced person. Might be a little bit of a workaholic, and that's probably where I put my focus. You know, that's therapeutic, I guess, to me. Um, but I'm fairly well balanced. I don't awesome. fight anymore yeah. like I did in the 20s. <laughs> and how long has the book been out for? Um, ten, nine months. Yeah. And how's it going? Well, it's going well. I've just gotten incredible feedback. I mean, it's really been so heartwarming. And when I first, when I first hired the ghost writer, I told, and she's a published author. She used to work for Simon and Schuster and Random mm-hmm. House. Her name's Jessica Jones. I got to give her props. Really just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh, I told her when I hired her, I do not want to publish this. I just need to get my insane life down in writing. Mm-hmm. And it took us three years. It was a very long project, a lot of work, a lot of work. And as we moved along in the process, she's like, oh, my God, Kendra, you have to publish this. You have to publish this book. And I said, no, 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 no. Always I would push back. Nope, I'm not interested in it. It makes me way too vulnerable in so many ways. I said, so So no. So you wanted it to just be a therapeutic thing to to get out of you. For my family, maybe for some friends. Right. But just it's so insane to just – I just wanted it down in writing. And then – you know, as we kind of moved along in the process, we're nearing the end of year two. I said, all right, well, I'll kind of think about it. And we get into the beginning of year three and finally said, I said, okay, we'll publish it. And she helped me find a publisher. 
uh, after three years of writing this and editing and editing and rewriting. And when I, when I gave it to my publisher, uh, when I turned it over to her, I said, I never want to read this fucking book again. <laughs> and I meant it, but I, you know, I, I did a, uh, online launch and then an in-person launch in Naples, Florida. My publisher does this thing every year in Naples, uh, where she invites six of her authors to do sort of a TEDx talk and, um, you know, book sales and whatever. And, uh, so I should have been working on the plane, preparing my speech, but instead I picked up the book and started reading. It. I was like, wow, this is a really good book. <laughs> uh, it's a, I mean, it's a fast read. You know, I've had people say, I-, I couldn't put it down. I read it in a day. I read it in a couple of days. I never, I never read books, but I couldn't put this book down. But I've just had so many people reach out to me to, to, um, you know, I've gotten just various kinds of feedback and some of the feedback I get is, you know, wow, I, I align with some of the things mm-hmm. you went through. I went through the same things. It's really comforting to know that I'm not alone. Some people say, because in, in the last chapter, chapter 14 is really focused on some of the things I did to heal and work through my healing. And so I share some of those nuggets. And what are some of those? Um, well, writing a book. <laughs> yeah, uh, you mentioned energy, uh, energy. Healing. A lot of energy. I spent a lot of time in Sedona with a lot of different healers. Um, but I really, you know, some of the steps that I I took were, I started practicing gratitude. I started keeping a, a gratitude journal, and it really makes such a difference. And I had always been very grateful for my career, my success, but I really started focusing every day. I'm being grateful for everything in my life and, you know, down to a really granular level. And practicing gratitude, it increases your – it's a scientific fact that it increases your endorphins and it makes you feel better and it really does. And so that was a real focus for me. I also started focusing on letting my guard down, letting people in, you know, letting letting people get to know me. And that was really hard, letting people in my home. I mm-hmm. threw a big party. For what I call my year of change, that was when I really started focusing on my healing. I said, "This is my year of change." So I let you know eighty people in my home for a big New Year's Eve party, uh, but really starting to socialize again and make friends. Um, I still didn't bring up my social media, but once it was time to publish the book, my publisher was like, "Yeah, you, you got to have all these different accounts," and so they managed it for quite a while. Um, and then, lastly, one of my biggest steps uh, was to practice forgiveness. And that's really hard, but to forgive all the people that have hurt me and there have been a lot, but also forgiveness for myself. Mm-hmm. And that is that's a work in progress. Do you feel like the forgiveness um was aided by doing the gratitude? Oh, absolutely. Stuff? Talk absolutely. about that relationship. Yeah, and I and I don't when I started practicing gratitude, it, I didn't associate it with being able to help me with forgiveness. But when I really start breaking down in a granular level, the things that I'm grateful for and how fortunate I am to be alive and still alive, it really made me focus on these things that I've been through and knowing that I needed to forgive and release. Uh, and, And again, it is, you know, I feel like I moved on from my mother a long time ago and I don't have a, a lot of anger towards her at all. Uh, I think it's really horrible what she did, um, but you know I would, and I never, I never was angry at my ex-wife. I was very hurt, but I, I never had a lot of anger towards her and spite or, 
you know, there was no, there was never really a need I felt to to say I you know I forgive you because I never held that against her because I loved her so much and I knew that this was sort of beyond she was born into this right, right. she was born a crack baby literally, yeah. um, but the situation at my work that's probably been the hardest to work through in terms of forgiveness because of the ramifications and what it did to me for well over a decade. I mean, I still deal with physical ailments from being poisoned. And is the breast cancer in remission? It is. Well, I had a double mastectomy, right. uh, but I get checked really regularly. Re- I have a oncologist in San Francisco and an oncologist where I live today. Uh, and so between the two, I get checked every couple of months. I, I don't ever want that sneaking up on me again. But uh, and I have to mention that uh, part of my healing was. I was going to ask you about that. The was, tattoo on your palm that says "lucky." Yes, that was a big a big part of my healing for me because I in practicing gratitude, I needed a daily reminder to be grateful. I needed a daily reminder to remind me, Kendra, you are so lucky to be alive. I've escaped death so many times, more more than what's in the book, uh, and so I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to live the life I live. Uh, and I'm, for me, the words blessed, fortunate, and lucky are synonymous for me. And so I knew I needed to, you know, not just put a post-it, up, post-it note up on a mirror or right. on my desk or whatever to remind me. I needed, I travel a lot for work. I needed something close by that could remind me. And so I decided that a tattoo on my palm where I could look at it anytime I start to feel, you know, down or frustrated – to remind myself that I'm lucky to be here, lucky to live the life I live, and lucky to be alive. Well, what a great note to end on. Kendra Petty, thank you. Your book is called I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead, and we'll put links to all your uh, stuff on the show notes for our uh, for your episode. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. This has been great. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Many thanks to Kendra, and we'll put the links to all her stuff in the show notes. Um I am not going to go into the details of the uh, Patreon stuff that's going on right now because I feel like I talk about it too much. But I do just want to say one of the things that we have added to um, some of the tiers is bonus surveys. So if you can't get enough of the surveys, go check out the Patreon page and consider becoming a monthly donor because... We are still way below the number of donors that we need to get to to uh, have this podcast break even. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a a trans man who calls himself uh, Owen. And about 
His OCD, he writes, I need to go over my life with a fine-tooth comb to see if I deserve to feel any pleasure today, and I can never be certain enough about his skin picking. Maybe the next blackhead contains the answer to all my problems. That is fantastic. Thank you for that, Owen. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Selfishing. She... Hold on. Identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. I've ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I don't think I've been sexually abused, but the people who I told it about, they all said or indicated that I was. I was 17. My best friend and her ex-boyfriend at the time wanted to have a threesome with me. I was apprehensive at first. I wanted to know what sex feels like and is it as hyped up as it seems. A few weeks later approached, I went to their flat and felt uncomfortable. So I whispered to my friend's ear saying, I don't want to have the threesome. Moments later, we started drinking, which I assumed my friend uh, told it, even texted her boyfriend that I don't want to have the threesome. My heart is beating fast while typing this. And by the way, that is usually a sign that something, uh, if not traumatic, really uh, fucking not okay happened. That was very technical, what I just shared there. Like an idiot. Um, As we were drinking from the bottle, passing it along, I think it was straight vodka, my friend started making out with me. My mind went blank during that. As soon as she stopped making out with me, her boyfriend starts making out with me. I started crying hysterically and shaking violently. He asked what's wrong. I said I don't feel comfortable. Something in those lines because my memory is quite fuzzy from it all. I kept saying no to him. He kept begging. Yeah, that's abusive. Uh, After the ninth time, I just gave up. I was telling myself that, quote, it, unquote, will be over with, and you can say you lost your virginity before any of your old friends uh, who you used to hang out with. The thing I don't know is if it was sexual abuse was that I said yes after giving up and I switched into some sort of prostitute persona who had to pretend to be enjoying it so I could make it less traumatic for me. Also, I don't know if it was because he stopped after 20 minutes saying, you're not getting wet, do you want me to stop? I said yes. It always fucks me up. Later on, at New Year's Eve, I went out with them because I didn't have any friends. Uh... The whole time, he kept on trying to make out with me in front of his girlfriend, grabbing my ass and saying, I love you. I don't really remember that day. I remember I left early when they were arguing, so it seems like I got uncomfortable over them arguing, which left them in a temporary breakup. It happened one more time months later, but my fingers are tired from typing. Uh, She's also been emotionally abused and... Uh, does not elaborate. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I wish I could pack my bags and move into my parents' place. I miss when I had no rent where I could spend my money how I wanted and still put money into my savings account. However, I don't act upon it because I don't miss the toxicity. Uh, 
darkest secrets. I wouldn't say I have any deep, dark secrets. Maybe I do, but my memory goes blank when trying to think about my whole past. Uh, But I definitely do have some deep, dark thoughts. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Being tickled because my adrenaline kicks in, which makes my heartbeat go faster. Somehow my horny brain thinks that's me being horny. I'm okay with it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would say a massive fuck you to the person who suggested to knock me out during my suicide attempt. Also a massive fuck you to all the GPs and crisis nurses who think I'm doing it for fun because I haven't attempted suicide this year. Wow. Wow. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with the sexual abuse thing. My boyfriend had a feeling that something like that has happened to me because of my reactions and people making jokes about situations like that. I told an old friend about the same thing in the same year when it happened. He didn't say anything about it, and he never spoke to me at all after that. I remember that he would just stare at me, which I was really confused about that. Wow. You know, the the sad fact is some people are so uncomfortable with talking about anything emotional or trauma-related that they don't put themselves in our shoes. They don't know how to put themselves in the shoes of the person sharing. They don't have tools like we were talking about. And it's it can really fuck you up when you're the person sharing. But it's also a great reminder that there are some people that are healthy to share with and there are some people that aren't. And part of life is learning how to find the people that are safe uh, to to share with. That's probably pretty obvious, but I thought I'd mention it. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel good. I wish I could write more, uh, but I remember this would potentially be a podcast and waste the whole episode. No, I'm glad you filled that survey out, and I, I appreciate that, and I... I I hope you can, um, and this is the major challenge of people who have experienced abuse, is to give weight to what happened to us. There's so many things that our brain does to, I guess, try to protect us by minimizing it. This is from the love survey filled out by Minnie, and uh, Minnie writes, I love making my girlfriend smile. I love being creative without inner or outer pressure to perform. I love learning interesting and useful facts and ways of thinking. I love hanging around close friends, close longtime friends, fooling around like it's back in the day. I love watching animals in their natural habitat. I love smoking a joint while sitting on my comfy sofa in the candlelight listening to the wind blow. I love the mental illness happy hour and I love you, Paul. Some love back. I also love my fellow listeners. We all connect here together through the stories of Paul, his guests, and those who fill out the surveys. Happy to be along the ride with you all. Thank you. That was really sweet. This is from the Babysitter Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself the house next to my elementary school. Um, She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s. uh, And... She writes, uh, 
As this started so young, I just just didn't have any understanding of sexual uh, pleasure. I didn't really understand why he would want, and and, uh, she was being babysat. I didn't really understand why he would want to touch me there. Uh, This took place over two to three years of my life, starting at the age of five. My brother and I shared a wall between our rooms, and the babysitter, Eric, would come into my room a short time after he tucked my brother in. Most times, I would just pretend to be asleep. He would mutter things to me that I assume were along the lines of me being a good girl, but the actual phrase eludes me. I remember thinking this is something I have to endure, and if I stayed still and didn't fight, it would be over soon, and I could go to sleep. I never, and still do not have an emotionally safe place with my parents. They were they were very uh, children should be should not be seen or heard. I remember being in the middle of one of the instances and wondering if he was going to harm my brother as well, hoping that I was enough to satisfy whatever his need was. Oh my God. Over the years, the abuse would take place in different locations, including his home that was right next to the forest I played in uh, at lunch with my friends right next to my elementary school. I would look at the entrance to his backyard almost daily for the seven years of being at that school and wonder what the other kids were being, what other kids were being touched like I was or if I should keep my friends away. Uh, From there, even suggesting different parts of the school to play during our breaks in the day. He was caressing, rubbing, and inserting fingers into me. I've spent all my life being so happy he didn't insert himself into me as if this would make it legitimate abuse and I was just experiencing an unnotable situation. My parents ended up firing him eventually as it seemed he was stealing from us, including getting double payment from my mom and dad for a night of babysitting. Wow. At 16, I got the courage to tell my mother as she came into our foyer from work. I was just out of the shower and I remember the feeling and look of myself holding up the towel, hair wet, and looking down at the table between my mother and I. I don't have many memories from this part of my life, but this one is so vivid and strong, along with other abuse instances that sadly, I think most women go through in their lives. It's this detailed second, my second, second, my second evaluation of abuse. I assume everyone gets this. That helped me figure out how it was my fault, or I didn't share correctly, or I didn't report And now he has been abusing people all this time. My mother and father did the best they could, and I will forever be grateful to them for that. It was a short conversation, but I was put in therapy for a period of time, and reporting was discussed with me, and I was given the ability to decide. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Fear. To this day, I do not trust men. I do have a high affinity to bondage-like situations. The feeling of being unable to move really relates to these situations. And as I get to know more about this, I feel so much shame over this. Until I left my marriage, I felt shame and responsibility for this. Last year, I looked up Eric, and it turns out he has two daughters, and it sent me into a tailspin. To this day, I have not reported 
and I feel responsible for all those being abused. It is not your responsibility. However, my therapist has warned me about reporters' experiences and that I need that energy for my children and life. She is right, and I agree, but the shame never ends. Uh, Do you feel any damage was done? My marriage was to a broken man who took it out on women just like my father. To this day, I struggle to date. I suffer from not thinking highly of men, and I am a mother of boys. Much therapy and constant work on this has helped. However, I feel forever broken. Anytime I think of myself as a child, I see the PJs I would wear made by my grandmother, white with light details of flowers or alike. I cannot see myself at any point of my childhood other than this person hunched over and defeated. Oh my God, that image. Um... For the first five years of being a parent, I was in a really dark place due to tw- a 12-year abusive relationship. I do not think me or my children were able or deserved boundaries or needs. I regret this part of our lives, but we are free now and have our safe space. I hope one day I will feel at peace with that, but until then, dot, dot, dot. When my kids were around five, I had a lot of therapy around appropriate touching, etc., as I found one day I was feeling like I might be touching them wrong. Due to having uh, boundaries broken so early in life, I had to learn that it is okay to touch or kiss my child out of affection, and that if I was uncomfortable, I can ask if it's okay for me to put my hand on their knee right now, etc. To this day, Five years on, I still struggle with touching my children, but these tools have created a new normal. I sadly think that mostly men would abuse my children, even knowing it happens the other way as well. This is something I continue to work on. You know, I just want to congratulate you on trying to end the cycle. Um, Speaking the unspeakable you know, bringing those things back up that every instinct is to bury them, not think about them, and to trying to be the best mom that you can and working on yourself, putting effort into your well-being and also knowing that your well-being affects the well-being of your children. I just, um, high five, high five. Um... Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse outside of events? Answered here. Uh, I've had my ass grabbed by five different men throughout my life. Friends, partners, high school, classmates, family members. My relationships with partners has rarely been based on consent either, but rather me being agreeable. I've had dating coaches, therapy, and other support over the years, including support groups. And while I am so much better these days, I feel like it's a never-ending journey and an exhausting one at that. Um, Any comments to make the podcast better? Do more advertisements. No one wants this podcast to go away or for you to financially suffer due to it. Maybe put the ones that are not within your criteria at the end with a don't forget to listen until the end as we have some advertisers that make this podcast possible waiting for you. Um, Please note that this content might include subjects or content that do not align with a podcast owner. Uh, 
Listener discretion is advised. Oh, FYI, I'm in the waiting room Patreon group. Oh, I wonder, I wonder who this is. We've got, we've had so many great uh, waiting room. For those of you that don't know the waiting room, it's a um, group of Patreon donors and we gather online on Zoom uh, every Sunday afternoon for an hour and a half. And there's usually somewhere between a dozen and 20 of us. And it's so supportive and beautiful. And um, just every, every get together, it just feels like the universe at the end of it is made it happen. It, uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but thank you for your survey, and hopefully I'll see you Sunday. This is a happy moment, and this is filled out by Star Starflower. And she writes, I'm in a career limbo right now as a postdoc waiting to hear back from permanent jobs with the feds, which can be a slow process. A couple of weeks ago, I was working at home on some teaching stuff and having one of those days where I felt utterly hopeless. My cat climbed into my lap and rested his head against me. I'm fortunate that my best friend and his husband live across the parking lot from me. I texted him and told him I wasn't in a great mood, to which he replied, get over here. I finished my work and walked over there. I walked in and without a word, he gestured me towards him. He asked what was up and I just said I was stressed out over not knowing and trying not to feel hopeless. He proceeded to bear hug me and held me for a few minutes with some words of encouragement and it was just what I needed to hear. We hung out the rest of the evening and watched Letter Kenny. You've never watched Letter Kenny, and you're Canadian or love hockey, but even for any person, but love Letter Kenny. I felt a little bit better. Spending time with them has been instrumental in keeping me sane. I don't even know what state I'll be in in four months. Thank you for that. There's nothing like feeling seen. Invalidated. And just that reminder that we don't go through life alone, or at least we don't have to go through life alone. If we find our tribe, man, we can we can go through life with them. There's a lot of good people that want to help. And if we ask for help, we're giving them an opportunity to feel purposeful and loving. But it's so hard to remember that when we're stuck in our own shit and feeling hopeless and cynical and like a burden. This is from the Loves survey. And, oh, this is our final survey. And this is filled out by, uh, there's something in the way. Yeah. I believe that uh, that's a reference to that George Harrison song, I think. Uh, and they write, I love it when my neighbors a retired couple in their late 70s waved to me from their window in the morning as I go to school. I know that they're looking out from their kitchen window on what's going on, and I also know they are probably saying, good, she's up early today. Also, I love it when my old dad is picking me up at the airport and is waiting for me in his car. I know there will be a time when he is no longer around, and I know I will miss moments like these where I feel so taken care of and welcome. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every now and then, I'm having a bit of a mellow day, and all I want to do 
is be inside to confirm that I am a miserable person in a hostile world. On these days, I love it when I get out and the people that are at work at the grocery shop or the cafe, a taxi or a restaurant manage to turn everything around. When the genuine friendliness of some of these people just makes all my worries wither away for that day and I sort of feel home in society again. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. And uh, we are we're going to take things out with uh, with the song that I wrote and recorded. And uh, I hope I hope you enjoy it. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. <laughs>